0: and um, kind of let you know where we have been and where we are now. The first two messages cover two different paths of sin. Um, one that's um, symbolized by the younger brother who lives a wild life and then the other of the self-righteous older brother who stays home. Um, so two messages on sin and, and then last week and this week we're talking about change. Last week we talked about the first part of change which is repentance and this, this week we're going to look at the whole idea of of faith and how it works. And I thought, even though it um, we've read it a number of times, it's good to just reread, especially for those who might be joining us for the very first time. Um, so I'm going to read a, a portion of the prodigal son's story found in Luke chapter 15. And um, I am going to be, begin in verse 11. Begin in verse 11. And uh, I do have it here um, where it says, And he said, talking about Jesus. Uh, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, uh, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him, Uh, into his fields to feed pigs. And he was um, longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And then verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, I I desire more than anything to be simply a vessel of your mouth, um, to communicate to your people um, how matchless and immeasurable, um, how unparalleled and unequal is your love for your people, and that the gospel of your grace um, really does free us from thinking that somehow we have to perform for you to get your attention or your approval when in fact your love precedes anything that we've ever done and i i pray that that you would just take your gospel and you would saturate the hearts and the minds of those who are gathered here for those who may not know you yet lord i pray that they would hear a word that they might believe and that you would open their eyes to the fact that this is reality and this is truth that this is who the god is who created all that we know and who lives, the one in whom we live, move, and have our being, and I pray that those of us who have believed that you would deepen our our faith, our understanding, overwhelm us with the magnitude and enormity of your love and grace for us in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, please, by your Holy Spirit, speak afresh uh, to your people and to me, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the middle of this story of the prodigal focusing on the first son, we, of course, see a kind of a radical U-turn in his life, um, from going kind of in a wild direction to making a U-turn and then doing this about-face and heading back into his father after his life has been shattered. But at kind of the center of that U-turn is, is this massive change that happens, a change that has, that has happened um, to countless thousands of people uh, throughout the centuries, people who have been touched by... The message of Jesus and the grace of God. Um, from Paul, who one day was a passionate church persecutor, to the next day being a, a, a champion of the Christian cause. That was a radical U-turn that took place in his life. And at the center of it was this meeting with Jesus. Um, to John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor. And and there are people in this room, uh, many of us, perhaps most of us, that can look back to a time when there was this U-turn made in your life. And maybe it was a radical U-turn, maybe it was a right turn, but there was a change. And at least in my case, I look back and and I can attribute certain factors, but really I can't understand why at that particular time in my life um, a change was made, except to say that at the deepest level God did something to me. But the Bible describes this change in two parts, one of which we looked at last week, which is the repentance idea. And um, we basically defined repentance as, um, as you have to acknowledge with your intellect that, that, that life is wrong, I am wrong, um, that there needs to be a brokenness of heart, and then there needs to be a change in the direction of one's will, and that constitutes repentance. That's the negative side of this coin on which the other side is this thing called faith, which is the positive side. And that, that's a part of this change that happens in life. And um, as I I said, I know it's happened to many in here, and some of us are praying for sisters and brothers and children that have not yet experienced that change and just wondering, Lord, are you going to bring them to that place where they will turn around too, and they'll they'll find you um, because you first found them. Um, And we're we're, we're looking for that. Well, I want to look at that second part of the change, namely faith. Um, Now, faith isn't defined in this prodigal son story. But it definitely um, is lived out. That is, you do see an expression in the life of this younger son of what faith looks like and how it works on a very practical level. And that's kind of where I want to go with this this morning is looking at how faith works. And I'm going to just draw out two dimensions of it or two observations about uh, how faith works. Um, But before that, let me just spend a moment just establishing the importance of understanding faith. Um, Some might think, well, you know, I got financial problems, I got marital problems, I got problems with my kids, um, I got health problems and, and how is talking about faith going to help me? Is it really relevant to my life? And I would say um, absolutely 100% it's perhaps one of the most relevant things you can talk about is faith. Um, in terms of the Bible, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, uh, there is a singular echo or theme that the just shall live by faith. Um, That Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, it wasn't on the basis of what he had done or not done, but it was on the basis of the fact that he believed. And that theme is carried all the way through the Bible so that what separates the righteous from the unrighteous... the, those who are accepted versus those who are left outside, isn't how well a person lived or how well they performed or how many bad things they've done. The single thing is, did they believe? Or should I say, in whom did they believe? And in what did they believe? That's, that's what separates, is that thing called faith, um, not one's performance. So it's, it's important on the grand scheme of the Bible, but it's, I think it's important... Um, faith because i don't think that there's a decision a choice or any activity in life that is not an outworking of our beliefs that everything we do and think is is based on some beliefs about people about self about reality so, for example, if there's a, if there's a, a, a guy who f- sees a beautiful girl and he thinks he has a chance at her, that is, he believes that there's even a remote chance, well, then he will kind of orchestrate the activities and choices of his life to try and woo and win the girl. kind of reminds me of a stupid line of the most wonderful movie made in Hollywood, Dumb and Dumber. You ever seen it? This just goes to show you how deplorable some of my uh, movie watching is. But there's this line in there in which Floyd, played by Jim Carrey, Uh, looks at, her name's uh, Mary, Mary Swanson, and he goes, you know, he's kind of a goofy guy, looks at her and he says, so, um, what are the chances of a girl like you dating a guy like me? And uh, the girl responds, uh, like one in a million, and there's this like awkward pause, he goes, so you're saying I have a chance. It's like as long as there's one in a million chance, he's like, I am going to go for this because if he believes there's even a one in a million chance, he's going to go for it. Kind of stupid, I know. But, uh, but that kind of idea on a more serious note. Um, it's been said that um, early in her life, Karen Carpenter was told that she was chubby. And she believed that. Which inevitably led to some distortions, some eating disorders and ended her life she believed something somebody said. A woman who's overweight or thinks she's overweight, believes she's overweight, whether she is or not, it's going to change her actions, her attitudes. If we really believe in our heart of hearts that money is the means to security and to pleasure, then we will spend much of our life, our activities and our choices in the pursuit of money. That is simply say, what we believe works itself out in our choices and, and decisions. So if, is faith important? Absolutely. Faith, I think, underlines everything that we do. What we believe about ourselves, other people, nature of reality, and so forth. And everybody has them. There's this quote by, by uh, Wayne Dyer, um, kind of the self-help guru, where he says that our lives are the sum of all the choices we have made. Our lives are the sum total of all the choices we have made. Now, if that's true, and I don't like the way it's framed because it's humanistic, but if that's true, I think it's even more true to say that our choices are based on the sum total of our beliefs, that our belief drives choices and decisions. So when we talk about belief, what we believe, how faith works, extremely important. I think it's also good to keep in mind that that the very first assault back in the garden in uh, Genesis chapter three was an assault on the truth. And it was an assault on faith. Because what he wanted to do when the devil came and tempted Eve was he wanted her to believe a lie. He wanted her to believe that God really isn't that good. So the first assault was an assault on the faith that Eve had in her good Creator. So is faith important? Absolutely. So when we talk about how does faith work, we're talking about something that's fundamental to life and our actions and our activities and our choices and so forth. So, back to the question, how does faith work? Especially in light of this, this son who is, who's made this radical shift, this U-turn, this about face going in one direction, now going in the other direction. And what does this faith look like? What does it teach us about how faith works? Well, the first observation is, is this. that And this is... A, Illustrated here, and it is grounded in lots of other texts. And that is this, that faith operates on the basis of truth. Faith operates on the basis of truth. Now, I want you to think back for a second to this, this uh, younger son's um, experience. Um, when he finds himself, um, his life shattered, he finds that his particular belief that he could find life by Living in a self indulgent manner, when he finds that whole belief shattered and he realizes he's eating with the pigs, um, there's something happens that changes the direction of his life. And what is that? The first thing he calls to mind in the middle of his mess and his brokenness is something about his father. That is, it says here, but when he came to himself, or another way of saying that is he came to his right mind, now he's thinking correctly he said to himself, and then his mind reverts back and goes back to a memory of what he knows about his father and his vast resources. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? In other words, abundance. Um, But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Is that one of the important things, not only does he realize that his, his, his path is bankrupt, that's the repentance side, But his first thought that changes the direction is a thought about what he knows about his father, namely, truth about his father. A person will not follow a path that they do not know. They will not believe in something that they have no idea about. So his mind first turns back to his father. He knows, you know what, my my dad has a lot of stuff, and his hired servants, the ones who work for him, they have more than enough bread. Like, he knows that about him, and, I think by implication, that He also, because he's willing to get up and go back to his father and confess his sin, he suspects that his father's going to be gracious. I mean, why wouldn't he be? Any father who would divide up an inheritance before he's dead kind of speaks to the heart of, of who he is. That I think this younger son suspected, you know, my, my father, when I knew him, was a pretty gracious man. And I know that he has a lot. The point being, that what sends him back home is truth. Is he knows something about what his dad has, and I think he suspects that his dad has a gracious heart. And so he's going to bank everything on what he suspects to be the truth about grace, his dad. Now, it's not a fully formed kind of truth or anything like that, but that's the first thought that sends him back, is he remembers who his father is and what he has. Now, biblical faith operates on the same principle, Is that um, faith is energized and belief happens and is ignited and change happens when someone comes to see by the Spirit's illumination the truth about God's heart, about what He has done for us in providing all the resources we need for life through his son, Jesus Christ, that he is immeasurably merciful and infinitely gracious and loving, and how he has acted in history so as to bring prodigal people home. It is the truth. It is the truth upon which faith operates. Where there's no truth, there's no faith. That's why Christianity and Judaism has placed so much emphasis on the word. So much emphasis on telling and speaking and sharing and singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs because there is this truth upon which faith operates and rests and grows. I mean, this is apparent, I think, in Paul's logic of Romans chapter 10 verse 14 when he says, how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? In other words, someone needs to tell them the truth so that they can believe the truth and then call upon the one they believe in. So it is this idea of word, of idea, um, content of who God is, his heart, how he's worked in history that is the operating principle and the basis of faith and belief. Truth. rests in the truth of knowing. Will God accept me? I've heard an amazing word, a good news that he has sacrificed his own son, bore our sorrows, and then he has given him life, and he's given us life to all who believe. That's the kind of God I want to go home to in the middle of my shattered life. So it operates on the on the basis of, of, of truth. That's what sends him home. Is he, he remembers, knows something about his father. Um, now along those lines, I think you can kind of reflect on on the nature of what I just said in in a couple of different ways that may apply to your situation. Because I know that there are people who know the truth, like some of my family members who have not yet changed, and to remember that that truth at some point may be awakened, because that's what the Spirit of God like pours water on to bring life and bring faith and belief, and that changes a person's life. It sets them in motion back towards the Father is this thing called truth or the gospel, the content of who God is and what he has done. Um, But just to know that God can awaken, I mean, think about it for a moment. We don't know how long the prodigal was gone from the father, but he was gone for some time so he carried the memory of his father with him for quite a while and at the right point, at the right time in his life when everything broke, he remembered. And everything changed. That there are people who have received and heard the gospel who may not respond to it now, but someday, in the right circumstances, at the right time, boom, they'll remember, this is what I heard, and I remember the testimony and the words of a God who is so loving that he would sacrifice himself for the sake of our sin and give us life. Along those same lines, this is kind of an interesting little story. I was, um, we're getting ready to go to Israel in 2012, so if anybody's really interested in going, we still have some room. But um, they excavated this place called Masada, which is one of the last holdouts of the Jewish people back in the, the Jewish wars of uh, A.D. 70. Well, Anyway, they were excavating Masada in the, the year 1963. And one of the things that they unearthed was a seed. Uh, it was a seed of, a, of a, um, a date palm. It was 1963. They did some carbon dating on this date palm seed, And it was 2,000 years old. It was buried there by the Jewish people. 2,000 years old. So buried 2,000 years ago. um, Excavated in 1963. And then in 2005, some of you have probably read this story. It came out in 2008. Um, In 2005, a botanist took that seed that had been buried in the ground for 2,000 years, put it in the soil, put water on it, and it came to life. Now here's a story. I know you don't really believe me, but this is like National Geographic. You know they call it the Methuselah tree, grew from 2,000-year-old seed. It's like amazing that something could be buried underneath the Earth. And of course, there's a really dry climate. things don't fall apart there, which is why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and yet within that seed, all of the properties with potential life are all there, and they didn't decay. So they put it in the right soil and put the water on it, and it blooms. And I just think how hopeful that is in terms of, you know, there's a time and a place where God the Spirit can germinate a truth in a person's mind because they have heard it, and life will be born. But it is, understand, faith operates, and the Lord has ordained that his truth be the means by which life comes. That is faith and belief and sense a person homeward. That's, that's one kind of just reflection on on how truth works in terms of igniting faith, um, I also think another important thing for us as believers to recognize is that is that faith grows in the same way as we as we feed our souls and minds on His truth and gospel, on who God is and what He has done, His character, His love, His grace, His holiness. His, his awesome power, his wisdom, and what he has done for us, and that he's packed it all in Jesus, who is, who's, uh, in whom all the fullness of God dwells, in whom all the wisdom of God dwells, and, and this taking in of those truths really does, like water and fertilizer, build, build faith and, and, and belief. But here, I, you know, I... I I want to say it's not just an academic approach to the Bible that treats it like a science book textbook in which you try and, try and just parse it all apart and put it back together and wow, I learned a verse today and I learned about the history of Israel and I know that Moses was spending, spent some time in Midian and, and Jethro was his father-in-law. It's like, that's great. But we'll know that, that the word, the truth, the gospel is growing our faith when we come to it like a thirsty person comes to water or a hungry person comes to food and you feed upon it, and it satisfies your soul. That's what builds faith, is this thing called truth. So we have this kind of operating basis of our faith is this truth. We've got to keep immersing ourselves in it over and over again. How are we going to separate out the lies that we've come to believe because of the world around us versus the truth, except we just swim in and saturate our minds and hearts and lives with the truth about who God is. The Bible ceases to be just a book of words and it becomes your best friend through whom you commune with the, with the Father and the Spirit of Father. So the, the point being that one of the faith, ways faith works is that it operates on the principle of truth. Where there's no truth, there's no faith. And by truth, we're talking about a grace-centered, God-centered truth that tells us what God has done for us uniquely in Jesus Christ. So faith operates on the basis of truth. That's one of the things you see. A second thing we find here, I think, is that um, faith comes to God empty-handed. This is an extremely important point that I I found both refreshing and um, I know for some of you this isn't isn't a, a new thing. But a failure to grasp this, I think, leaves us in a place where we're constantly trying to earn from God something or perform for him so we can grant some forgiveness or some, some uh, approval from him, which just simply isn't the case. Um, so he remembers this this truth about who his father was, his, his resources, and suspected that his father was gracious and would take him back. So he comes back. And then we find when he gets there, he basically walks up, um, with nothing to offer. Uh, that's, that's basically what it says. It says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your, uh, called your son. And at this point, the father interrupts him, won't let him go on with his, uh, his ploy to try and work for him or work his way back. But he comes with nothing. He simply comes with a confession that he's done wrong. And he goes on to say that I am worthy even to be called your son. In other words, I don't even, I don't even deserve to be known as your relative anymore. I mean, he's just taken the walk of shame. Which would have come, what would have come with it was the idea that he was wrong. He's going to have to admit he's wrong. He's going to hang his head, but he comes back and he just confesses to his father. Listen, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer to be worthy, worthy to be called your son empty-handed. And that's how the Lord wants his people to come to him. Empty-handed with nothing. I have nothing to offer you. And that's so contrary to our human instinct and pride. We always want to bring something. It's difficult for us to receive something without offering something in return. Then in his case, you know, if, if, if I was in the prodigal son's shoes, I probably would have thought, well, maybe I should dress myself up. Uh, maybe I should go go to some rehab for a while, see if I can get myself back in good standing so I can come back and say, hey, I'm ready. That's what we do in our human relationships often is we, we, we form a sort of penance that we have to do in order to gain good standing again. You make your wife mad and she... Uh, you decide, okay, I've got to make this right, and so you make her dinner, and then you take the kids out to a movie, you come back, you rub her feet, and then you give her flowers, and everything's right again. You go through your little process of penance. He doesn't do any of that. He simply comes back empty-handed. I've sinned, and I'm not worthy. That's, that's biblical faith. Almost by definition, that's what faith is. A recognition that I don't have what it takes. Empty-handed. That is, uh, that is so freeing to know that I don't have to like go through a process of, of penance to somehow gain God's smile back. In fact, if you do that, it's actually offensive and dishonoring that the best thing is the most unnatural thing for us. Namely, just to say, here I am. I, this, you know my past. I, I, I went away with riches. I came back in rags. I went away defiant, and now I'm just simply here broken, saying, here I am. This is who I am. And I'm, I'm sorry. I have broken. Um, I, I, I am broken, and I'm not worthy even to be known as your relative. And that kind of open-handed approach to the Lord... I'm not going to, he doesn't want you to do parlor tricks. He doesn't want you to like go on probation for a while. The father doesn't ask for an extended explanation. Doesn't put him in some kind of a purgatory to earn his way back. He just, he just comes empty-handed. And this is a truth that is reaffirmed over and over again in scripture. That this is how God's people not just come to him the first time, When you're first converted when that first change happened but this is how christians are to come to god all the time we walk this life empty-handed there's nothing that you have that you have not received nothing so not just at the beginning of the christian life do we do we do we relate to god empty-handed we live the christian life empty-handed everything i am everything i will be everything i could do will do you will do all of it in the end is his so we always are empty-handed Tremendous humility in this, to recognize that really the only way that God smiles down upon his people's faith is if that faith is an empty-handed kind of faith. Jesus teaches the same principle three chapters later in Luke chapter 18, where he tells another parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both of whom are at the temple, both of whom are praying. Pharisee is standing, you know the story. He is praying, thank you, Lord, that this guy, I am not like the rest of these people who are adulterers and so forth. There's a smug sense of self-righteousness to his prayer. Meanwhile, right next to him is the dirty guy, the tax collector that nobody likes and everybody knows is, is a sinner. And he can't even bring himself to lift his eyes to heaven. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinful man. And Jesus says, you know what, of those two men, the one who came empty-handed, who just said, listen, this is who I am. I, I have screwed up royally. He went away justified. Because he was honest, real, um, broken before the Lord, empty-handed. I have nothing to offer. Nothing. I can't perform it, point at any performance that I've done that would please you. And as I said, that's, that's just not the way that the, the, the Christian life begins, but it's also the way the Christian life continues to be lived out. King David. Uh, taught us this in Psalm 51. You know, he took, a, a as you well know, a, a major dive down in his whole affair with, with uh, Bathsheba and, and the defiance of God's good grace. And he knew that he had nothing to offer. So when he writes his, his song of lamentation and confession, he knows that you have to come to the Lord empty-handed. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Or I would give it. In other words, he knows that an animal's not going to like take it away. That's not really not what the Lord wants. It's payback. Or I would give it. Um, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, O God, uh, heart. O God, you will not despise. There's not a single Christian in this room who doesn't struggle with sin question is, what do you do with it? What does faith do with it? You're going to beat yourself up thinking, you know, if I beat myself up a little more, maybe God will see how sorry I am. Maybe he'll be happy. Are you going to tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to pray hard and I'm going to read the Bible a lot. And then after a week or two weeks of doing that, I know I'll feel better about myself. And I think I'll feel like God is proving of me. You know what that is? It's just a a form of performance. It's a a form of of trying to gain God's favor again through our penitent acts. He doesn't want any of those things. All of that, all of that, simply diminishes the sufficiency of his grace and his forgiveness for us in Jesus Christ. You know what he wants us to do? He wants us to come in faith, trusting, Lord, here I am, You know me, I'm Dan Deckard, and and, um, sometimes I argue with my wife. I'm sorry that I got angry and I said this to my son. I know that nothing is hidden from you, and I know that you don't want anything from me because I have nothing to give. So I'm just going to stand here empty-handed trusting that you satisfied my sin in Jesus, and I'm going to live a life of thanksgiving empty-handed that's how the Lord wants you to come to him over and over again based on the truth of what you know about him and what he's done for us but to rest empty-handed in the fact that he he has supplied for us that's how he wants us to live and you know what the rest of our life we're going to be battling our dark side until he brings us home and thank the Lord that'll be a wonderful day But until then, we live empty-handed, acknowledging, hey, this is who I am. I am, apart from Jesus, unworthy to be called your son. But in him, I know that I am free, and I am loved, and I am saved. And you see what happens now. The son remembered a truth about his dad that sent him homeward by the way, can I just say that sometimes faith, faith doesn't have to be strong to save. It's not the greatness of our faith that saves. It's the greatness of the God in whom we believe that saves. As John said, just a, a mustard seed side of faith, um, if it's real, can save. I, I think maybe, this is just my guess, and it is a guess, that the, that the prodigal son, when he first started to think about his father, I think he probably, his faith looked more like a Maybe. Maybe he'll accept me. But even a maybe is a form of of, of, of subtle faith because it sends him in a direction back to his father. And look what happens then when, and again, I'm just telling you a story you already know, but... But it's worth thinking about and relishing and and reveling in is that here's this simple fate that comes back to a father, simply comes empty-handed, acknowledges he's unworthy, and then what happens as a result? Something amazingly, embarrassingly wonderful. He's shot for being a hired hand, which itself would have been a gracious gift considering how he treated his dad. But the father's response is... A vivid portrayal of the heart of the God that we worship. The father cuts him off, and he says, "Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his right on, on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fatted calf kill it, and let us eat and celebrate um, this 22 and, and 23. This is unbelievable humbling, embarrassing grace. I say embarrassing because, you know, you put yourself in that place, you've just, you've wasted some of your dad's money and you know the people are mad at you, you're the black sheep of the family. So I don't think he walked proudly up the road, he slithered like a snake. Probably thinking, man, I just hope nobody notices, I'm just going to like find my dad, because this is how I would have done it. Find my dad, I'll beg for forgiveness and ask him, can I like, be a janitor in a closet somewhere where nobody's going to see me? I just want to eat. But instead, the dad's like, hey, my son's home. And then he's calling servants and telling them to go start a party and get him a robe and get him a ring and put shoes on his feet. He makes much of his son. That would have been humiliating and embarrassing to say the least, but wonderful at the same time. Just Just have all that attention drawn to the black sheep of the family, because he knew he wouldn 't deserve it. Have you ever uh, i don 't know how your personality is, but this is the way I am when it 's my birthday i don't like big parties because i don 't like it when people make much of me and say a lot of nice things that really aren 't true <laughs> oh dan he's just you 're just wonderful. <laughs> Man of God, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, on the inside, I know I'm just, a, I'm just a sinful person in need of grace like everybody else, and so it feels so humiliating. And here's this black sheep of the family standing there, and, and calves are being slaughtered, and, and the best robe is put on them, and a signet ring. And, and as I said, it may have been humiliating and embarrassing, but at the same time, how wonderful. Because... The son is now back with his father. He now belongs. He has regained the family name. He is not ostracized, but he is loved. He's back in the place of peace, back where he wanted to be, and, and fully reestablished as his son. That's, that's unparalleled, unimaginable grace. And, and that's a picture. That's a picture of how God responds to the person who believes in his truth, of who he is comes empty-handed and just acknowledges. There's this like avalanche of, of things you just can't, can't get your mind around. That's why you know the Bible speaks of, of things that, and whatever we think we have in store for us doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. You know, things like um, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think. Um, to think of words like, no eye has seen and no ear has heard what the Lord has in store for his people. And just kind of different points meditating on the ungraspable truths that, that we are, Psalm 33, we are the heritage of the Lord. It's like, you know, the Almighty who, who, whose presence can't be contained in the known or unknown universe, somehow, like, sees little insignificant little creatures as his heritage and his prize, as Possession. His glorious inheritance. The idea that he would inhabit us and he would include us in his home. That he would share his glory with us. That he would share the immortal, eternal life with us. Is itself beyond grasping. But that is the heart of God. That's the heart the Father. It's the heart of God seen in Jesus who is God's reaching out and providing everything that we need to be full-fledged sons and daughters of His. That's, that's, that's the truth and that's what faith does. It operates on the basis of truth that you believe this is who God is and it moves forward in that simple faith. It acknowledges have nothing to offer the Lord, and then watches as God gives us and pours out upon us uh, immeasurable volumes of His goodness and blessing. Um, that He took away our curse at the cross, and He gave us unparalleled blessings in the life of Jesus. Now, let me ask this morning, just bringing this kind of to a point in this room. Is there, let me rephrase, re-ask the question. I know, I know that there, in any given Sunday, are individuals who come because your life is broken and you've, you're at the end of your rope. Your way of life is petered out and um, you don't know where else to turn. And perhaps you've come here this morning and think, man, I, I just, I need something. I don't know what I need. I believe it was to hear this truth. And maybe in your mind, the Spirit of God is producing a maybe. Maybe this is real. Maybe that's, maybe this is who God really is. And if that's you, I, the way of, the way of salvation isn't to parade what you've done or haven't done. But to believe that God has applied everything in Christ, taken away your curse and given you life and to come empty-handed and simply to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And I believe this could be a moment where you start your, your journey home to the embrace of your Father. I pray if that's you, I pray you'll hear, because that's, that's the call. And then to those of us who are believers, Christians, you know you've come to that place, and you're on the journey, and you find yourself like weighed down with your financial struggles, your marital frustrations, problems at work, problems with kids, And you just feel like there's this pressing weight upon your life. You know what enables us as Christians to live with joy despite those pressures? By remembering that you already have his best robe. You already have, he's already given you the signet ring of a son of God. And you're part of his family. And no one can take that away from you. And I think it's in the realization of that, that truth of who we are in Christ to God amidst all of the struggles that, that allow us as people to kind of shout with joy, um, to sing with joy to know that this is where I live, this is what I believe, this is where I'm headed, and despite all of this other stuff, this is what matters most. Don't forget that you have been completely received, embraced, embraced. And made a son or daughter of the Father regardless of your circumstances. And live in the joy of that simple truth of who you are now to the Father through Jesus Christ. And breathe it in like air and and let it fill your soul. Lord, I I don't love you like I should and and I certainly do with my brothers and sisters, can't begin to grasp the level, the height, the depth, the width of your unfailing, immeasurable, unparalleled, boundless, limitless, infinite love. And yet what an amazing, life-filling, soul-filling, strengthening truth just to know that you have embraced us, not because we do anything for you or have anything to offer you but simply because you are gracious and you are abounding in love to a thousand generations. Help us to live in this truth, to relish this truth, to worship in this truth, to live on the basis of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.